0: Hello and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Zauk, and today I sit down with Philip Britton, founder and CEO of Crux. Crux helps companies reliably get the data they need, how they need it, and where they need it. Acting as the humble neutral utility of data connections, Crux ingests valuable data sets from over hundred suppliers. They then routinely clean and standardize it to deliver it to end users such as hedge funds in any format they need. If you spend time working with financial data, you know how massive this problem is. Philip has been in the fintech space for over 30 years, first as a serial entrepreneur, then eventually working with Google Finance, Bloomberg, and Thomson Reuters before starting Crux. In this episode, we go deep into Crux's product, how it works, Crux's integration with major cloud players, why he's only used strategic funding, and much more. Let's get started. Hi, Philip, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. We're excited to have you on as a guest today. I'm very excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Great, so where are you quarantining at the moment, and what have you been up to these last few months? Uh,
1: (laughs) Well, I'm quarantining in Montana which is my home state where I grew up on our family ranch here. And, uh, you know, my parents are still on the ranch and I love spending time out here. I do. I do anyways and plan to move back here full time at some point. Uh, And, you know, with everybody working from home this year, thanks to COVID, I've been able to work from here for a couple of months as well as from my home in, in New York State. In terms of what I've been up to over the last few months has been work, you know, Crux is going, as we'll talk about it, going gangbusters and going very, very well. And then while I've been in Montana, I've been, you know, also able to help my dad on the ranch with a bunch of stuff, doctoring horses, fixing fence, stacking hay, all the all the usual stuff. I had a really interesting adventure getting good Internet connectivity to the house here. So I had to set up a microwave repeater, which was quite a, an epic project, <laughs> much more than I bargained for going into it, but uh, all is well that ends well. It's working well. And I have learned learned a lot uh, doing it and uh, it's been fun. So all that on top of, uh, you know, trying to hike and camp and my kids, my grown kids are, have been with us out here as well. So it has been a lot of great family time. And these are the the crazy silver linings of COVID. has been a lot of good family time with my parents and my
0: kids. And that's great. That definitely sounds like a better place to be than Philadelphia <laughs> at the moment uh, where I am. Uh, but yeah, yeah, definitely a pretty unique place to be. It sounds quite bucolic doing all of that kind of great farm tending and spending time with the family. So to begin, could you just talk us through your background and take us up to the founding of Crux?
1: Sure. So I've been in financial technology pretty much my whole career of 30 some years. My I'm a software engineer by background. I studied computer science at Harvard. And I've been both a serial entrepreneur. Crux is actually my fourth startup. I did three startups early in my career. I'm all focused on financial technology, primarily analytics for derivatives, valuation, risk management kind of systems. And I worked at Bloomberg for a number of years, headed up the foreign exchange and economics business units there. And then... I was at Google and headed up Google Finance and also helped out on Google Local Search for a bit. And then my last corporate job was at Thomson Reuters prior to the Refinitiv spinoff, and I was the chief technology officer and and global head of platform there and oversaw all all product development uh, across everything. Thomson Reuters did in the financial and risk parts of the business. And then in... And through all of this, so I've been a basically a you know, an engineer, a product manager, an entrepreneur and an inventor. I've got a bunch of bunch of patents, variety of, of areas as well. Fun! I love creating things, whether it's software or ideas or music or companies. That's my big passion is create is creating stuff that has some
0: lasting, you know, some durability. Got it. So Where does Crux come in?
1: Crux, you know, at the end of 2015, I left Thomson Reuters and felt like I wanted to have some time off. So I spent 16 uh, just taking some time off and really sort of contemplating what I wanted to do next and whether I had this gnawing question in the back of my mind, Is that am I up for going back to being an entrepreneur again? And I also had the idea for Crux had been kicking around in my head for years and years. You know, I thought, well, let me spend a little bit of time doing some research and sort of sussing out this idea. And and I gave myself a time whether by the end of 2016, I was going to commit or not. And so after talking to a bunch of people and realizing the challenges that had motivated me to think of Crocs in the first place still existed. And frankly, they were only getting worse in the industry. Customers were only facing more and more of of exactly these challenges. And so I felt like the need for crux was just growing and the opportunity to start it was just growing so early 17 i sort of made that internal commitment to do it and i spent the first half of 17 you know finding some like-minded individuals to help me work on doing all the stuff you do when you start a new company which is a lot of market research talk to a lot of folks, okay, who are the cut you know, for crux to work, we're gonna have to get the buy-in of customers. So talk to a bunch of those. We're gonna have to get the buy-in of data suppliers. We'll talk about, you know, the, what crux does, but it's we are a meeting point between both. So we need both sides of that market to be interested and think what we're doing is valuable. So lots of conversation, building the business plan. I was fortunate that there were some, you know, notable investors in the industry who had already indicated they would back my next venture. So started conversations with them about whether they were interested in this. And by middle, by summer of 17, kind of felt like, okay, this is a go. I've got everything lined up, you know, validation from customers, from suppliers. I know what we need to build at least at a high level. Got interest from solid, serious interest from investors. So I think this is a go.
0: Can we kind of take a step back? So what exactly is Crux and what problem is it solving?
1: Yeah, sure. So we call ourselves a data delivery and operations firm. And the core problem that I noticed all those years ago, about 10 years ago or so now, was that there's a huge sort of gap between where data, suppliers of data, so data vendors or exchanges or any company that's basically providing data to other companies because they're selling the data or they need to get data to customers or for whatever reason. Doesn't really matter. Data needs to go from one firm to another. And there's this space between where the provider of the data makes the data available, usually at some kind of endpoint, an API or an FTP site, or some other means. You know, it's all obviously in recent years it could be like a, a cloud data warehouse like S3 bucket drop. We have some data providers still just email Excel spreadsheets to their their customers. That's how they get data across, sort of at one end. And on the other end is the place where a data consumer, somebody who's going to use the data and find it valuable, where that data becomes useful, where they can actually start to use it. There's this gap. And in between is a whole lot of work and toil, frankly, and risk of wiring up to the data provider, downloading the data, checking the data, because every time you get an update of this data, and you know this data is always is generally every data set is updating on some regular frequency, uh, it has to be checked. Did something go wrong? There's all kinds of you know data quality issues, you know, famously. So all that, that now what in between part of wiring up and ingesting the data and watching the data and validating the data and cleaning up the data and dealing with data quality issues and, you know, coordinating with a data supplier and all that stuff, and then cleaning the data or standardizing it and loading it, basically, traditionally, every firm is doing that work themselves over and over and over and over again. And um, it's ridiculous when you think about it, because none of that's differentiated. It's really exactly the same. Where people might do it slightly different from each other, but that first part of it is really not different from firm to firm to firm. There should be a utility that comes in, does it once, does it really well for everybody, and just be that kind of switchboard. Because, you know, and basically get economies of scale so that the costs and time and money and brain damage can just kind of be offloaded and or the cost can be shared across multiple clients. So everyone's going to spend way less time and way less money getting the same end result. Than they would have everyone doing it doing it on their on their own. An important part of our model is that we are not a data vendor ourselves, so we have no conflict of interest with any of these data suppliers, and that's how we've been able to, to forge really great partnerships with over hundred of them now, as we announced this morning. Because we don't compete with them, we do not sell data, we do not resell anybody's data. We're shipping and handling for the data. We call ourselves sometimes the FedEx of data. So, in the same way, it'd be kind of weird if FedEx was also selling shoes and compete, you know, delivering for Zappos, but also competing with Zappos. Like, that'd be weird. It's the same thing with us. We don't do that. We just deliver data, we just oversee it, we make sure it gets from point A to point B really well, really quickly, low cost, high quality, gathering lots of operational metadata, tracking number, timestamps, all that usual stuff you get in when you do shipping and handling, and make it just make it easy for everybody. So it's very important that we do not sell or resell any data ourselves. We never will. because We think it would be limiting for our business to do that. In the same way, we don't have a use case, so we don't have any conflict of interest with the data consumer. We don't have a terminal. We don't have an analytic. There's lots of firms doing amazing analytical work. That's not our business. We're not trying to get the client to do this or that, or choose this data over that data set, or this is how you use the data. We don't do that so there's no conflict of interest with either the source of the data or the consumer of the data or simply shipping and handling and you know to somebody who's not involved in this business that might seem like oh what's the big deal with that like why is that a big deal but if you're in it you're like oh my god it's a big deal that's a big deal Um, it's a surprising big deal it shouldn't be it really shouldn't be so that's why we exist to make it not a big deal for everybody
0: so can you talk us through the first few years of getting Crux started, You know, building your team, gaining investor interest, and really launching the product?
1: So I think this is a go. So we founded the firm in July of 17, closed our first round of financing uh, led by Goldman Sachs as a strategic investor in the fall of 17, then spent 18 really hiring up the team, the initial team sort of starting in the fall of 17 and through 18 and building the first version of the platform. And, you know, crux is one of those things that's like, what, what we're doing is super hard. You can't just sit down and start doing it tomorrow. You have to build a lot. So we, we made, you know, significant investment of, of money and of time and of effort and brain power uh, to really get this thing even to a point where it could be launched. And that's basically what we spent 18 doing. And then during the course of 18, oh, sorry, we also added City Citibank as another strategic investor to our series a and then in 18 we started in addition to building the platform i also started going out and talking at industry events um conferences of letting the industry know what we were up to start to get them early we weren't launched yet but get some interest from data suppliers and from customers about what it was we were doing two sigma saw me speak at an event and said hey we fully agree this is the future we totally buy into this vision know we've been doing this in-house we think we're the the best in the world i think arguably they are extremely good at doing this themselves but they're like we don't think it's differentiating anymore we shouldn't be doing it somebody should do this on behalf of lots of customers get economies of scale just like get it off our hands let us focus on higher value problems or our internal resources so we had a one discussion with them and which ended uh with us doing a series b which we did in 18, we've seen that all announced, and them publicly becoming an anchor client for us. So, you know, they committed to using Crux in an all out way and uh, transitioning all of their data ingest, data engineering over, over to us over some time. We knew it was going to take a while for us to be at the scale to support the size and scale of their business, which is significant, as you know. So, we started a really great partnership of investment and customer relationship, and frankly, the good collaboration in 18 and then in uh, march of 19 we had the platform fully done production ready and we launched it then with two sigma as a an anchor client pilot client if you will really kicking the tires on what we we're doing and, and using us and we started talking to other customers at that time as well and we started most importantly onboarding data we built a bunch of relationships with data providers and we started just wiring up data to Crux. And basically, 19 was really us doing that, standing up our 24-7 data operations capability, wire going from zero data set last March to about 10,000 roughly now, going, building up all the partnerships we have with data providers, building partnerships with the cloud providers and other data management and analytics platform folks that are part of the same ecosystem and of course starting to build an early customer base. And then 2020 has been all about commercializing. We're we're, fully in production. We've got critical mass of data sets, critical mass of data suppliers, and we've just been adding customers at a regular pace now throughout
0: throughout 2020. I tangentially worked uh, with a lot of banks and financial services clients before this. I was a consultant. So I know what an absolute okay. pain point it is, <laughs> and spent a lot of late okay. nights manipulating and cleaning this data. So this is an awesome company. I love the idea. The second you know, it kind of came across more in fintech. So moving on to a different piece, what is Crux's yeah. general revenue model?
1: So we get paid a shipping and handling fee for each data fee that goes through. We're also a pure SaaS model, so we get paid just a monthly set fee per data set that each customer. So. It could be, and we can get paid by either end. So just like FedEx, either the sender or the receiver of the box can pay FedEx. They don't care. As long as somebody pays them to get the the box from A to B, they get the box from A to B. We're the same way. Consumers, our general model is consumers will pay us for each data set that we are delivering to them on a monthly basis. So we get paid monthly basis for each of the data sets we deliver. We also have customers on the supply side. So we have customers like, Euro, we've announced Euronext, FX, MSCI, smaller emerging vendors like Donnell Capital. We have some others that will be announced for along as well. They pay us to be their delivery arm. So in their case,
0: they pay us for each data set for each end client that we go and wire up on their behalf. So what are the common ways of ingesting data? And is that changing at all? So, how do the end customers, the data consumers, get data that's been validated
1: and processed and tidied up by Crux? What we've found is the industry is really fragmenting. You know, it used to be the case that everybody just had an FTP side, and that's how you got data customers were happy with that. Well nowadays kind of almost nobody wants to use FTP anymore for a variety of technical reasons. But what they want isn't one other thing. There's lots of different things customers want. So we have an API, a modern RESTful API, we have a Python client that wraps our API. So a customer can just write Python code and it will access seamlessly the crux the data they have access to via crux to that client of course we do support ftp both push and pull for those that want to use that or it just sort of fits their existing infrastructure and then we've also built really deep partnerships with all of the cloud providers and so we've been fortunate to build very deep relationships with Amazon and Google and Microsoft Azure and with data warehousing uh, specialists snowflake and so that means we can deliver data on behalf of a customer into any of those cloud platforms. If somebody like an MSCI uses us to deliver data, traditionally they would have used FTP to meet today's growing, fragmenting customer demands, let's say, they would have had to, on their own, build out an API and build out integrations with every single one of these cloud vendors and they have to keep doing that on into the future. But by partnering with Crux, they get all that immediately able to deliver their clients with the API or direct into their cloud data warehouses, et cetera. So that's a big part of our value prop as well. Now, something that I'm sure you've noticed, the cloud providers are starting to offer data marketplaces, and most notably, Amazon and created and launched almost a year ago now 10 months or so ago the amazon data exchange was really they were really the pioneers in this space I mean, just make it super easy for people to find and potentially purchase data that they're interested in crux was a launch partner for them and we provide data and we are the biggest provider or enabler of data in the financial sector and in the public data sector into the amazon data exchange and we have a relationship that's been announced amazon uses us to uh, wire up data vendors that are interested in providing their data through the data exchange where the, the data operations team is. So Crux, in addition to dealing with all the complexity of these different kinds of wire ups on the upstream and on the downstream, we also provide an absolutely critical role of QAing all the data and stopping it from going into the customer's data warehouse if it looks broken and calling the data vendor and saying, hey, this does not look right. How can we fix this before it hurts your client? And then we have a relationship. We've also announced with
0: Snowflake, a similar
1: relationship. We bring data in, we make it available in
0: their marketplace. So who exactly are Crux's investors and what has been the use of funds so far?
1: So the funding has just been, you know, hire the team and, you know, invest in infrastructure and all your normal stuff. We've been a very engineering focused company in the early days, a typical tech startup. You know, it's pretty much the whole company is engineers to begin with. And then as we get a product ready, we start to build out other functions. We have, obviously we had to early on kind of get a partnership uh, function to deal with the data vendors and build those relationships and sign those partnerships. And then as we started to have something that we could go out and sell to customers, build up a sales and capability, we've had great marketing team who are on the call here, really doing a great job of getting the word out so people know about us. So we built the company, you know, I think in a, fairly typical and sensible way. It's not unique by any stretch of imagination, but one of the things that we've done, maybe different from a lot of tech startups, is we've gone so far for strictly for strategic funding. So we've had no venture capitalists so far in our cap table. Our funding has been large financial institutions. So I mentioned Goldman City. Two Sigma, we also have Morgan Stanley, I didn't mention earlier, is also an investor in the firm. And then we have a number of individuals and family offices, but all strategic. Every single one of these people who has invested in our firm is in the industry. So, why no VC funding and only strategics? From our point of view, I think the reason to go strategic was driven by a couple of things. One is having investors who understand the problem because they're living it. Because they're actual users of the service is terrific, very value add. And in the early days when there's a lot to figure out and we're breaking new ground and nobody's really done this before, you know, you just need a lot of smart people at the table and a lot of insight, like educated insight at the table, really hands-on. So, and they've been that. Like we've our investors have been super helpful on many respects, but because they're in the industry. Um, so, that was part of it. The other was that we are positioning ourselves, we're not a consortium, or a normal startup, but we do position ourselves as a utility for the industry. We're trying to act on behalf of the industry, make money, of course, but basically do this is win-win for everybody in the ecosystem. And having strategic investors, I think, help position us that way and make everybody, okay, we are kind of owned by the industry and on behalf of the industry. I know we hope to add in our, you know, subsequent rounds of funding. And again, it'll be fairly typical growth pattern. I don't think there's anything really unusual in the way we do fundraising or what we will do in into the future compared to other typical tech firms. Undoubtedly we'll add more strategic investors, which is great. And you know, we'll probably
0: add financial investors, at VC or P E firm. How has COVID 19 impacted your business both, you know, externally with your customers and user suppliers yeah. and then as well as internally, you know, flipping immediately to a completely remote company? Yeah.
1: So we are extraordinarily thankful and I remind the team almost every week. We have get togethers every week. I'll talk about the, you know, all hands during throughout this period. Remind everyone to be super grateful, super grateful that we are in a business that can operate during this crazy period just fine. There are a lot of businesses out there that just can't, and my heart goes out to them. I feel just terrible about you know whole industries getting wiped out, and it's, it, that's devastating. We are very fortunate, being in tech, being in finance, we can operate completely fine remotely, and our customers have figured out how to operate. It seems to be completely fine remotely, and so we're just super super grateful for that fact. Externally, our business has been growing. Now we're a startup, so I would expect us to be growing, you know, pretty quickly at this point, anyways. But COVID does not seem to have slowed us down. You know, obviously everybody was very concerned in March, April, and was like, "What's going to happen? Is everyone going to go scared? Is the market going to dry up?" Et cetera, et cetera. And we took steps, to, you know, tighten our belt and just make sure we're being we're being very efficient and in, in how we're going about things and just be smart about it. But honestly, I think COVID. the the most interesting thing in the business world about COVID is that it has been accelerating a lot of trends that were already underway. Like The trend towards a more distributed workforce was already underway. COVID accelerated it. The trend towards an online world, obviously, been underway for decades. COVID has massively accelerated it. Zoom, cloud computing, massively accelerated it. And frankly, the hunger for data has also, was already a long-term trend. People were more hungry for data, as I mentioned earlier. Frankly, if anything, COVID has accelerated that. And we've seen our business grow, and a number of the data providers that we partner with have told me that their businesses have been growing, almost surprisingly, through COVID. So people want even more data during the COVID period. I think the the amount of market volatility and uncertainty has driven people to become even more data-driven more quickly. It was already a path they were on, but it's happening more. So that's, frankly, if anything, that's just accelerated accelerated this trend, and that's what we're we're here to help that trend and facilitate facilitate all that. So that's been very positive. We haven't seen, aside from you know some delays and uncertainty in the very early weeks of the whole thing, well, you know, over the last couple of months, it's really been business as normal, and everything has been just accelerating internally we were also worried we we went literally from operating in the office to operating remotely from one day to the next but we did see this coming even when the virus was you know hitting china really hard and was not yet prevalent in the united states you know we all saw the writing on the wall we knew this was coming inevitable so we already had a fairly, you know, relaxed culture and people would work from home on, not systematically, but on, you know, regularly take one or two days every now and then and work from home. So people were practiced. We asked everyone in the weeks ahead to make yourself work from home and just take stock of everything you have. Can you do your job? 100% from home, made, you know, upgraded some laptops, you know, just did a few things, made sure everyone was ready. And then when it hit, and um, Governor Cuomo, you know, in New York State announced the work from home. Boom, we went home one day to the next. My fountain pen is still sitting on my desk in the office. That's one thing I missed. And, uh, and we were able to do it shockingly well. Like we all expected, okay, we're not going to get this right. It's going to be some problems, et cetera. It, it has gone shockingly well. And we didn't miss a beat operationally. Frankly, our service has just gotten better and better and better. You know, we've done things, as I said, you know, we do gather the entire team online at least once a week, sometimes twice a week to just create more of a sense of togetherness and community that isn't happening naturally in, in the office. And people stopping by each other's desks, you know, you miss that and you miss jumping in front of the whiteboard. We've done a lot of work looking at online collaborative tools and all kinds of stuff, obviously, like everybody using Zoom and other video conferencing uh, systems to really keep more of a sense of togetherness even when we're all apart. We check in a lot with the team, make sure everyone's doing okay. It's, it's tough. I mean, this has been a tough period. There's no whitewashing that. Like, this is hard. And it's trade-offs. You know, on the one hand, working from home has been logistically easier for, for some people. But on the other hand, you know, you miss being able to get in the conference room and hash stuff out with your colleagues or even that sense of camaraderie. There's a psychological piece of it. So we check in a lot about all of that. Knock on wood, you know, so far, everything has gone well, externally and internally. Not 100%, but, you know, in the grand scheme of things, I'm just extremely thankful for that.
0: Great, thank you. And uh, I think that's a good place to end the interview. So Philip, I just want to thank you again for coming on the show today. It was great to have you on.
1: Uh, My tremendous pleasure. And thanks very much for inviting me and listening to my endless rambling.
0: Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know your thoughts in the comments. If you're looking for more FinTech content, Subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Wharton Fintech. There you will find articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. Signing off, I'm your host, Ryan Tauch.